0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Ralph Hope about his book titled The Grey Men, Pursuing the Stasi into the Present, published by One World in 2022, which looks at the East German state security service um, that was so dominant during the period of Uh, the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, East Germany, um, where during the time that they were in charge, they amassed billions of pages of records on everyone really in the country and a lot of people outside of it. And yet when the Berlin Wall falls, suddenly this organisation no longer has a reason to exist. And what happens to all of these employees who are suddenly unemployed? That's exactly what this book details and explains a number of things about how the organization worked, what happened afterwards, um, and answers some of the questions that we might have had about things that didn't happen. Um, specifically, anyone being particularly prosecuted um, for their role in this very uh, known-to-be-brutal security service. So this book answers a lot of questions that I'm sure I'm not the only one that I who reading it who maybe didn't really realize I had these questions until I read it. So thank you very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts and insights.
0: Hello, Miranda. Thank you.
1: Could you please start off by introducing yourself and your background and through that explain why you decided to write the book?
0: Uh, Yes. Um, I served as an FBI agent for uh, more than 25 years. Uh, Most of that time, uh, I was a street agent, which is really all I wanted to be. Uh, my specialty was violent crimes, uh, drug trafficking organizations, kidnappings, extortions, and the like. Um, I wanted to catch the bad guy and I wanted to protect the victims. Uh, after 9 11, um, I raised my hand, as many FBI agents did, to focus on international terrorism. It just so happened that I had a background in international relations. And so shortly after, Raising my hand, I found myself on a joint terrorism task force. And then uh, shortly after that, working for extended periods of time, uh, months, in the Middle East, Asia, Central Asia, the various stands, Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, and so forth. Um, I was then uh, appointed as the deputy head of the FBI office in the Baltic states, and uh, it was then that I started running into not only former KGB or current, former, uh, current and former KGB officers, but also uh, some people that were identified to me as former Stasi officers in my various uh, meetings that I was having. And I started going to Germany uh, from time to time, work-wise, uh, and um, I had a question. Um, I'm an investigator, so I have a lot of questions. This question was, what happened to the Stasi officers after the wall came down, after unification in 1990? And I started asking that question and I didn't really get a satisfactory answer. And that's where this book came from.
1: Fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's really um, clear that your background in the FBI as an investigator, does give you both unique access, obviously, to people, but also really has honed your kind of asking of questions that comes throughout this book um, in really helpful and insightful ways. So I'd love to ask you about kind of some of the main points in the book, uh, where you eventually essentially track down this answer of what happened to the Stasi after the wall fell. But in order to kind of set the stage for that, can you explain to us what the state was of the Stasi, when the wall fell, how many people worked for it, how did someone become an employee, kind of who were these people that then suddenly became unemployed?
0: Uh, Yeah, and uh, before I address that, there's one additional point on the question that I had that I think uh, intrigued me uh, and and caused me to go down this journey. And that was when I asked that question in Germany, to the average citizen, to the person on the street the, of the, uh, that would be old enough to know, um, what I received in an answer is a look of quiet desperation, I would say. When I asked people in government, in the current police and intelligence services, not only in, uh, primarily in Germany, uh, in this case, um, I received what uh, I would describe as embarrassed silence. And that motivated me to find the answer. So that was even more so than just a simple question. It was the answers I received that uh, motivated me. Um, Now, as far as your question as to the uh, numbers of people that worked for this dossier when the wall came down, which of course um, was in 1989 and unification following the year after that, there was roughly 100,000 employees that worked for the Ministry for State Security. Um, the Stasi, or as the officers like to call it, the firm um, of those hundred thousand, nobody really knows the exact number of officers, but the best estimate by a, a Stasi expert is that approximately seventy-five thousand of those were officers, all very carefully selected and very well trained, very well educated. Um, in nineteen ninety there had already, when the unification agreement uh, was concluded, approximately 60,000 of those former officers went out looking for new careers. And uh, that's where the adventure starts as far as where these people went. And more importantly, uh, the people that don't want to talk about where they went.
1: And how did someone become a Stasi officer? Um, Like what were the sort of, was it open to anyone? What were the kind of qualities that made people do this? How long did you have to serve before you became an officer?
0: Well, officer, uh, first off, you didn't walk in the door and fill out a job application. Uh, That was virtually unheard of because, of course, uh, like many uh, secret police agencies, uh, they are very suspicious. So they selected people. They reached out. There would be, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, uh, a, a university student that was doing particularly well. He might get a visit and be given a, what they described as an opportunity to serve the GDR. Um, many times they hired uh, uh, children of current Stasi officers who grew up and, because that was safe. Uh, They felt that was safe and that they were less likely to be penetrated by external uh, security services. Um, And and to be fair, uh, when the wall came down, most security services at that time, including the U.S. intelligence agencies, thought that they perhaps had 25,000 officers, which would have been a huge amount for a country that size, roughly the size of Florida. But they were off. The U.S. intelligence and the other intelligence agencies were off by a factor of four.
1: Okay, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, thank you for explaining that. And you then, obviously, in the book, you go into much more detail. So I would definitely recommend um, reading the book to get those details, as we're not going to be able to cover all of them in the interview. And you describe kind of what happens to the Stasi both immediately before the wall falls and then in those kind of initial few chaotic moments of going oh no hang on what's actually happening and perhaps unsurprisingly um the stasi try to destroy their files before they're taken away um and people realize that and so there's these citizens committees that you describe that occupy stasi buildings in order to protect the files um and there's this big kind of effort made right when the wall comes down to sort of preserve the evidence in a way and yet as you detail in the book uh despite these committees literally occupying the buildings despite the kind of known idea of we have to make sure these files are saved um they the files do continue to be destroyed or moved or essentially not protected how is that actually possible though when officially at least the organization no longer exists
0: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, you mentioned that uh, what happened to these officers, you know, what were they thinking uh, when the, this uh, started to unravel? And uh, the reality of it was that uh, some many were surprised, but many were not. There had been preparations underway for some years uh, because the writing uh, was seen on the wall that something was going to happen. I don't think anybody... Uh, that it would happen this quickly. Again, certainly not US intelligence uh, services or foreign intelligence services either, and not generally the Stasi, but there had been preparations made as to what they would do if something happened. And um, part of that was to uh, destroy the files, destroy uh, as much of the most incriminating files as possible. When you have 120 kilometers of paper files, that's not an easy task. In today's world, a flick of a wrist could destroy all of those files that are digital. But then the Stasi operated as prolific collectors of information, but in a pre-digital age. Uh, so that caused a problem for them. And uh, when the, uh, the peaceful resolution, re- revolution, as it was called at the time, uh, Started kind of in grassroots uh, citizens getting together and uh, starting actually in Leipzig uh, in a church and with people gathering with candles talking about politics in a church because that was one of the few safer places they could do that. And then they spilled out into the streets. And these people and their candles were the ones that defeated the GDR and defeated the Stasi organization, at least. Um, once that started to happen, then the uh, Stasi were in full destruction mode. They were destroying files uh, in their all the district offices 24 hours a day. They wanted to burn them, but they didn't feel comfortable doing that because they felt that their offices were being watched and that smoke billowing out the back would be, you know, could precipitate something bad happening. So they kept to shred and shredding. They did, uh, burned out hundreds of shredders. Uh, more than that were found, uh, scattered around. Uh, unfortunately they used East German shredders, which maybe weren't quite as robust as the West German version. Um, and so they, they continued to shred and continued to shred by using a criteria that to this day is unknown as to what they shredded first. It's believed that what was shredded first probably related to very uh, sensitive information involving kidnapping, assassinations, and, uh, and, and, and so forth, very sensitive sources that they operated. But nobody really knows. But they left Uh, 18,000 bags of uh, Shredded or torn files once the shredders burned out they tore the papers and They tore them up quite well, but uh, it turns out that technology can solve uh, Reassembly even when documents are shredded and certainly when they're torn but they decided to, uh, once the citizen groups took over the main Stasi headquarters in Berlin, where uh, most of the, uh, the files were being held at that time, um, the Stasi officers uh, offered to help the occupiers, the citizen committee. And they did that by saying, look, um, there's a lot of you know, sources that we have, and if this gets out... Then people are going to be are going to get the electric chair in America and the uh, the citizens committee members were kind of an informal ragtag group that weren't particularly sophisticated didn't know really what they were looking at uh, were trying to do the right thing obviously, but they uh, they weren't very much uh, uh, particularly favorites of America at that time, so they didn't want people to get electric chair in America as, and they allowed the Stasi officers to continue to shred files that they said would protect these sources. And it was during that period of almost a year that they the Stasi uh, supervised files continuing to get shredded, even after, up until unification and slightly after that. Uh, and uh, uh, it turns out that when they were shredding files, a the foreign intelligence arm of the Stasi also threw some other files into the mix, and that was all of their own personnel files. And that was part, part of their plan that they had to start fresh. It would have worked, and it should have. Um, however, there was another file identifying them, all Stasi officers, that the, their file uh, archivists used to file documents, and a typical officer had no reason to know about that. That file was found later which identified every serving Stasi officer.
1: So this list that identifies everyone um, obviously becomes quite important for a number of reasons. And yet you show in the book that it ha- essentially tell us how and why it was and was not used. If it does identify everyone who's an officer, surely the logic would go that you can therefore track these people down, put them on trial, etc., etc. And yet that's not what happens. So... What does and does not happen with this list and why?
0: Well, there's actually two uh, lists per se. Uh, The list I referred to uh, previously was actually a file that was used, uh, like a three or four page file. It's called a central card file that uh, had a lot of information about each officer, where they had served, what they had done, what awards they had received. It was like a summary of their personnel file. Um, so the Stasi Foreign Intelligence uh, Division, called the HVA, shredded all of the officer personnel files within their division. They were the elite within the elite. And so, but then it was, it was the central card files that were found uh, much later that uh, actually had that detailed information of even those Stasi officers. Now, while this was going on, with the chaos at the at the uh, Stasi headquarters, uh, with the citizens groups milling around around the offices, trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, preserve things that they thought were important, uh, which you know they didn't really know, you know, who could say what's in a file. It was at that time that a uh, several Stasi officers successfully removed from that uh, headquarters. Um, a bag containing some magnetic tapes which that included the identifying information of every stasi officer and the reason they did that was they wanted to ensure in the new germany they would all get pensions and they felt there had to be evidence somewhere just evidence that they so when they filed their pension claims they they the 100,000 could Uh, be entitled to a pension from the the Unified Germany. So they took those uh, magnetic tapes in a bag under the noses of the citizen groups, took it, put it in a car, drove it out to an old GDR army base, uh, not far from Berlin, where they had other officers who were technically able to extract names and create a database. uh, Basically, uh, what uh, uh, would be the equivalent today of an Excel spreadsheet showing the officers' names, not all the information that, that, uh, that uh, basically just that they worked and when they worked. And the idea was it would be presented at some later date by the, these officers as, as proof. Well, again, that nearly worked. They did get it converted, but um, there was an anonymous phone call made when they were busy at the Army base. That anonymous phone call, which to this day, nobody knows where it came from, alerted the Citizens Committee uh, group uh, in, back in central Berlin what was going on. And they became enraged that somebody had taken something, and they all showed up at the Army base. Um, in all the confusion, they were let in, and they seized uh, these records, these this database. Um, The officers there said, well, you know, if you do this, people are going to die, and the usual um, excuses that were offered. But it didn't work this time. The uh, citizen committee seized the database. They provided it to a uh, a trusted politician who locked it in a safe, who then turned it over to West German authorities. Soon after that, the leak started. And before long, you could find... uh, a complete list of everybody that served in the Stasi for a short period of time in Germany. That list is, impo- is impossible to find now. Um, and that's because of the, the German privacy laws and the EU privacy laws, which, make it, uh, which actually work in the favor of the former Stasi officers.
1: So then, but this knowledge was available at some time. Um, so why then have so few people who work for the Stasi? Have had legal processes against them, gone to court, gone to trial. It, it would seem like maybe the reason would be okay. We we don't know who they are, but there is this list. So can you explain, obviously with less detail than you do in the book, but can you explain to our listeners why, despite having this list, there wasn't a lot of legal follow up?
0: Well, there were many, many uh, uh, criminal investigations opened, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Very few of those resulted in any charges. And even fewer of those resulted in uh, any uh, Stasi officer being convicted. And of those, uh, there was only one Stasi officer who actually went to prison for something they did in the Stasi. And there are many reasons for that. Um, fear and embarrassment is one of the reasons. Um, a lot of the stuff from the files were missing. Uh, was concerning to people, not only West Germany and Europe, and even the United States, uh, and certainly the UK. Um, and so in the rush to unification, uh, they were hoping to sweep away a lot of things and hoping that many, many people, even government, hoped that all this would just go away. Um, and uh, so there were very few uh, successful uh, prosecutions, uh, you can count on one hand, and only one officer that went to prison. And that is a fact that it's very difficult to find in Germany. It's not known to the average German, I would say. And I think uh, some of the people I spoke to in government also didn't know that, which was surprising.
1: Why is it so little known?
0: One reason is nobody wants to know. Um, and if they start asking those kind of questions again, there are very active uh, Stasi former Stasi organizations that are active today that will stage protests, that will marshal uh, many people to show up, or that will make anonymous threatening calls to politicians or journalists. And that's today. I mean, uh, the you know two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty, um, and uh, which you know the the fear continues. And and frankly not only did a lot of files disappear, but a lot of money disappeared, too. And uh, I think there are still people that are concerned uh, as to what is in those files, uh, you know, that could possibly either be embarrassing to them uh, in the, in, from their private life or uh, kind of uh, identify them as possibly cooperating with the Stasi. So, uh, you know, a large numbers are trying to still wish this away. And I've had journalists tell me that if they try to investigate too much, uh, then they also are subject to threats and intimidation. And again, this is 35, 40 years later.
1: Hmm. No, quite, quite a powerful um, idea of how much strength uh, that, that organization held and then kind of what happened next. So before I ask you to tell us about kind of some of the people that you were able to track down that happened, what happened to them afterwards. Um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned uh, an answer ago about uh, the impact of German and EU privacy laws. And you detail in the book um, that on a particular day in November 2008, German Wikipedia was turned off. What does that have to do with the Stasi?
0: It was turned off because of a, uh, a an injunction that was applied for in a German court by a former Stasi officer. Um, who was upset because he was identified as being a former Stasi officer, which of course is true. He was a former Stasi officer. So, uh, under the German privacy law, he he could say this was this was uh, causes problems for him. It invades his privacy, and so he filed uh, with a, uh, a German court in Lubeck um, and was received this uh, successful injunction. Which he uh, served on Wikipedia, and they promptly shut, turned Wikipedia off. Uh, now, this particular uh, former Stasi officer by the name of Lutz Hellman, uh, he uh, was very active in the left party in politics. And um, unfortunately, this action backfired because when Wikipedia turned off, people asked why. And when they found out the answer, uh, a lot more people knew that he had been a Stasi officer than would have if he would have said nothing. So uh, it was shortly after that uh, it was turned back on, but it was enough to to bring it elevated to people's attention to the average person who maybe didn't know anything, a younger person about the Stasi or didn't care. But then when Wikipedia went off, they had a, they were curious, and this is what they found out about this officer.
1: Interesting. So what then can you tell us about? What has happened to some of these former officers? What have they kind of gone on to do with these records not being brought up, or with perhaps with some of the money that disappeared? Um, kind of where have some of these people ended up?
0: Well, you know, many Stasi officers, uh, due to their nature of being educated, extremely motivated, and being used to having their way for um, years, not surprisingly. Uh, went on to success elsewhere not all did but many did and some ended up in the russian energy machine at very high level and remain there today Um, some uh, succeeded in business many started practicing law Uh, they had been given a law degree uh, by the stasi university as it was called in potsdam Um, and under the unification agreement they could just uh, practice law in Unified Germany after filling out a form. Uh, the only problem with that was that, of course, in the Stasi University, they weren't trained to represent clients. They were trained to protect the state. Uh, but thousands of, of new lawyers popped up. Um, many people uh, then, uh, former Stasi officers, were, went to work in banking, working for police, A large number of police. I think there are still some working in police now. Some of them found a niche working at the Stasi archives, where all the records were, and they were uh, worked for years there. I believe as of a few years ago, there were still four or five employed there. Uh, They scattered across Europe and across the world. Some even went to America and uh, the UK, and then they uh, proceeded to tried to hide behind uh, these privacy laws, which basically made it impossible for them to be outed as a Stasi officer, certainly in Germany, because they could then file a complaint with the appropriate department saying their privacy had been violated. And the person who uh, published the information would get a very onerous level a letter threatening fines. And in many cases, these were uh, prior victims. Who had been in prison interrogated and operated websites to talk to other victims and if they identified a Stasi officer um, they could be threatened with fines. So in effect the victims were vic- victimized once again and the former Stasi officers hid behind uh, German and then the later uh, uh, EU privacy protections.
1: Hmm. And. Combined then what we were talking about earlier in terms of kind of threatening phone calls and that sort of thing, these strands sort of combine, and you discuss them in the book under the idea of Stasi revisionism, um, among other aspects. Can you tell us about kind of how this overall um, push by former Stasi employees, how has that impacted um, how the GDR as a whole is remembered? Or I suppose the other way of phrasing the question is, can you tell us about Apologies for mispronouncing. I'm sure I will. But can you tell us about Herbertus Knab, who he was, what he was trying to do, and then why he lost his job?
0: Yes, I mean, just uh, overall, the uh, it's very difficult in Germany um, and even in some places that aren't in Germany in the in in Europe to uh, criticize communism, to criticize the GDR. And it's, uh, I, I've had quite high placed people, even within the current German government, who told me that, you know, it's safe to criticize the Nazi period. And it's fine. You can do that every day of the week. Um, you know, the, but if you, the minute you criticize the GDR or communism, then uh, there are demonstrations, then the calls come and uh, there are threats. And so it's easier for them not to address that. And, uh, you know, the the curious thing when you, Berlin is called the city of remembrance. That's what it's called, it's referred to that. I mean, the, uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's a remembrance, but you're only really supposed to remember certain things. And that's kind of the untold uh, truth, one of the untold truths there. And if you uh, want to have a memorial, which some people have on occasion tried to have a memorial to, to the victims of communism or the victims of the Stasi, seemed you know, pretty straightforward for Berlin, which has memorials everywhere. But every time they try to have that kind of memorial, large protests, they marsh uh, the former Stasi organizations and the, the heir to the GDR Communist Party, which is still in Germany. Um, marshals. Big opposite, large opposition. So that's the Germany of today, and that's surprising. There, it's it's a lot of hushed uh, conversation, a lot of uh, uh, discouragement for people to discuss the things that should be discussed. Albertus Kanab was a a man who was born a free man, just barely, because his parents crossed over from East Berlin, West Berlin, shortly before the wall went up, um, they all knew something was going to happen at that time. Nobody knew what it was going to be, but uh, his father decided that they should cross with the other children. And so his mother was pregnant with him. And they stepped across the line, uh, which you could do then before the wall was up. It was still risky because he had Stasi officers hanging around that would would, uh, question you, interrogate you. Certainly you couldn't have suitcases. You would be stopped even without the wall. Um, And so he was born as a free man. Uh, But when he grew up, he chose to fight anyway. And he became a very good uh, student of history. He studied and eventually got a PhD. Uh, in uh, uh, West Berlin. And he started visiting uh, East Berlin um, as part of this, which you could do then for uh, uh, a weekend, primarily because the GDR wanted hard currency, which you had to convert uh, at their official rate when you arrived. Um, and he met a woman, as as what happens sometimes. And um, then he became closely, more closely connected to... Uh, the GDR, and became more uh, determined to return, because he and people in his generation had seen many former Nazis appear in German government after World War II, and it was frustrating, and they were quite sure that this time it would be different, that this time that wouldn't happen. And they were disappointed, and he was disappointed. But he, 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 was, uh, he continued to pursue. This and when the when the wall suddenly tumbled, shortly after that he became the first uh, lead historian at the Stasi archives, and it was uh, there that he started to conduct his own research and started to talk about things that people didn't like, such as where these officers were went, what they were doing, who was a former Stasi informant, and uh, he started facing uh, mounting uh, underground resistance. People would, even within the archives where there were Stasi officers then, people that would uh, call him Stasi Hunter or, or things like that behind his back. And so at one point, um, a solution presented itself to the, the people that opposed him, and that was uh, to put him as the director of a museum. Um, and that museum was the old Stasi prison. Uh, in the region called Hohenhausen, which is uh, on the, uh, the, uh, just outside of central Berlin. And it was a museum that basically no, that nobody visited because it was an old prison, and old prisons are kind of dangerous to visit if they're not fixed up properly, and it, uh, it was uh, not easy to, to, to get there, it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't publicly known. And so they told him, look, we're going to uh, make you as director. And to their surprise, he jumped at the chance. And they were happy because he wouldn't have any files out there. And he'd be out there in an old prison. They felt everything would be taken care of. But he decided that he wasn't going to make it a museum. He was going to make it a memorial. And by doing that, not only did he fix it up exactly like the prison was when the Stasi operated it, but he hired former inmates to give tours. And before long, after the first year, uh, there were 100,000 visitors. And then it later became one of the most visited uh, Cold War uh, sites in Europe, actually. And uh, so that was... And he served there for quite some time until, I believe, 2018. And then? And then uh, he was forced out and the details of which I'll refer your readers to the book suffice it to say that uh, that the uh, uh, it had uh, many of the hallmarks of an operation run by a Stasi group, a Stasi organization and uh, even to former victims it appeared to be that they were still active and that they had done this and uh, it's uh, but again you know to his credit uh, even though he was forced out for uh, really, uh, for an indirect reason, um, he's continued to do the same thing uh, with his own personal platform and at higher risk with with virtually no protections. Um, now, uh, you know, he's not in an official capacity. And he, you know, he was forced out. Uh, one of the things he had been working on a new project at the time, which uh, he had decided that it wasn't enough to talk about the Stasi, because um, he saw what. Uh, was happening in the present day, and he wanted to talk about what, it ha- what was happening in the present day, not only what the former Stasi officers were doing, but also what the former members of the SED, the former East German Communist Party, were doing. That party uh, changed its name a couple times and uh, is now known as the Left Party in Germany. And uh, so he would continue to publish things about that, and so he he continued to be a threat. So it was yet another instance of where an attempt to Uh, keep him quiet, didn't work. And so he's a man who uh, chose, has chosen to keep fighting against these Stasi, former Stasi officers, their organizations, and the former SED Communist Party officials for 35, 40 years past when the wall fell down, it came
1: down. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that and expanding. And of course, as you said, there are a lot of more details in the book. Um, so definitely recommend that if you're curious about kind of what uh, Ralph, you thankfully already told us a bit about. So um, kind of to stay in the present day to an extent, right? You were talking about how he got forced out of his position in 2018, right? That's quite recent. Um, similarly, in the book, you talk about how Germany is still paying pensions to former Stasi employees, in fact, worth $300 million a year. Why?
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, it's it's uh, it's I believe it's more like 350 million euros, and that fact was another fact that was difficult to find. Um, and uh, the months that I spent in Berlin, I talked to a lot of people in uh, government and even some journalists. And I would ask, you know, are they getting pensions? Well, the, and the answer was, yeah, they're getting pensions. Well, how much and how many's getting them? And nobody seemed to know. So I went to the German pension office. And I talked to somebody there who, it turns out that uh, there is, uh, you know, certain information that's public, and I determined that in 2017 that uh, 66,077 former Stasi officers were receiving pensions, and they were living all over the world. Um, coincidentally, if you're a Stasi victim uh, and you're imprisoned for more than a certain amount of uh, time. Uh, you can apply and get 300 euros a month, which is a tiny amount, um, and only if if they go through the process of determining they're unjustly convicted and basically opening up every the whole experience again. Uh, and if they're only if they're financially destitute, but none of those criteria apply to the former Stasi officers who receive pensions many many times that amount and without any such restrictions.
1: That is a rather large discrepancy. Um, so I was quite interested to see that in the book, uh, that that's kind of a systemic aspect of sort of what you're generally talking about, that the Stasi is maybe not as gone as we might like to think. Um, and kind of in that vein, in there's one section towards the end of the book that you have a really interesting kind of thought experiment to a degree, where you think about what the Stasi would be like if it still existed, right? How would the organization have adapted what would it look like if it was in the 21st century if it had you know had the technology to move beyond those thousands and thousands of pages millions of pages of paper documents so could you tell us a little bit about kind of what you think after doing all this research um after your career what what do you think the stasi would be like as a 21st century organization
0: well when that question popped up um i was sitting in a Stasi organization speaking to a former Stasi officer. So I asked him directly that question: What, how would you have? What would you have done? Uh, you know, uh, with you know, the, kind of the internet being more prevalent, being social media, you know, uh, would you have adapted? And what you know? And his immediate proud response was: uh, We would have adapted quite easily, I expect. And I believe that to be true. And so I started thinking a bit more about after and speaking to some uh, people, not only in uh, the, uh, the German government, but other intelligence agencies and, uh, and looking at my experience. Um, and, you know, it was clear that what we see now happening in China is very, very, uh, it gives us a window into what the Stasi would have continued uh, to do had they been in uh, 2022, 2020. Um, And the uh, Chinese communist uh, uh, government is still uh, very, very uh, favorably connected to the old GDR communism. In fact, it was just a couple of years ago that they provided a statue to the town of Trier, in the town of Trier, Germany, a statue of Karl Marx, the German founder of global communism. And they frequently make uh, the premier in China, frequently makes mention to German communism as not a failed experience, but as something that didn't fail. And what China has done uh, now is to create an internet Berlin Wall um, that can be extended around citizens uh, of theirs or other countries anywhere in the world. Using technology, and I believe it's uh, that is a technology that the Stasi, of course, uh, would have uh, uh, adapted to. Uh, they, the former Stasi officer, bragged to me that they um, were already hacking into computers of other governments in the in the in the late eighties, and that was in the very early days, even in the U.S. and uh, other uh, uh, Western countries of being able to do that. They were very well financed, very, uh, had unquestioned authority and had, could do anything without fear of any, any actions. So with that, you know, bad things happen. And that's what, you, of course you see that in China um, and you see uh, them, uh, uh, I, I discuss a little bit in the book, uh, you know, they've developed an app to help uh, uh, Put a, a, a wall around citizens uh, that can be set up quickly. Um, they are using social scores. And you see, even talk in Western countries of using social scores. And uh, th- all of those things, of course, uh, and uh, Stasi officers told me, would have been a dream come true for them. Um, they uh, have told me that it would have been so much easier to accumulate information about people now, of course, than it is then because of, uh, you know, technology, social media, and a variety of things. So in many ways, their job would have been easier. And that would be the Stasi in the 21st century would have been uh, much more ruthless, effective, and much uh, very similar to what we see in China and a couple other places around the world
1: interesting it's particularly interesting kind of that you were able to ask that question as well to people in addition to obviously being able to tell us that answer so thank you for sharing that with us um as we move towards the end of the interview I sort of have a few kind of traditional wrap-up questions that are always really interesting given how much work and um, particularly in this case how many conversations you had with people involved and things like that. So is there anything that came up in the kind of creation the process of this book that surprised you?
0: yeah there were a number of things. Uh, the first thing was is just how active the Stasi organizations are still. Um, these organizations which were set up uh, immediately uh, after uh, or actually during the process of unification in 1990 you know were set up for a number of reasons uh, one is to uh, uh, support the Stasi officers in their new ventures another was to uh, uh, support the Politicians of the former SED as they continued uh, their political career. Uh, they're still doing that now. Uh, I was standing in a, a different Stasi organization office, and I observed a couple of former Stasi officers working on a current campaign for a member of the left party. And this was in probably 2019. Um, and the other reason that these organizations were set up was is was to uh, to commence a revisionist element to convince people students, um, media that, you know, communism wasn't that bad. It was misunderstood. It was quaint. It was, it was harmless. And, uh, so as doing that, they, they do cooperate with, uh, you know, uh, movies that are sometimes made, uh, referencing this Stasi, as long as the message is correct. Um, one of those, just as an aside, that I can mention that yeah, your uh, listeners may have heard of is uh, a movie called The Lives of Others. A good movie, a very good movie uh, in many ways. It's popular outside, uh, you know, in, in the US and uh, in the UK, many places, as it shows the chilling nature of the Stasi as uh, they, uh, the level of penetration that they had. Um, the movie's not very popular in Germany. And the reason is because it makes an, several technical. In uh, uh, mistakes, uh, the movie was uh, given technical advice by one of the Stasi organizations, and one of the m- major bits of uh, error that it makes is that it portrays one of the—I guess you could say—the hero was a Stasi captain who decided that enough was enough. He wasn't going to support uh, the destruction of an artist. Um, and so he took action to uh, kind of uh, uh, defeat the investigation and to make sure the artist wasn't imprisoned. In reality, that had never been known to occur in any of the 40 year history of the Stasi, which is why the uh, Germans, anybody who knows, uh, immediately dismisses that aspect.
1: Um,
0: so that was all things that were interesting on how those organizations were active. Also, it was interesting to find out how these active organizations are still in contact, in some cases, with former uh, Stasi informants or even spies. Uh, they it came up during my conversation with a Stasi officer that they were in contact with former uh, Stasi spies who actually were convicted of espionage in the United States and got out of prison just a few years ago. So, you know, this, uh, all of those things, when you sit down in one of these offices, you don't feel that the organizations have gone away. You don't feel that the Stasi has really gone away. Um, and, you know, you walk down the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the these old buildings down the linoleum, type of linoleum that you see in old Eastern, former Eastern uh, uh, European government offices, and you go into this room. And as I did, and I see on the wall a um, huge picture of Vladimir Lenin in their conference room, okay, in 2019. Um, I see in a different office a newsletter where they are celebrating what they call the scientific career of one of their favorite Americans, somebody called Angela Davis. Communist Party USA went, to, went was tried for being involved in uh, a kidnapping of uh, uh, providing weapons to uh, a group that kidnapped and ultimately shot and killed a uh, Superior Court judge in California. And so, you know, it doesn't feel like it, you know, that they, and they certainly don't feel that they've gone anywhere. They still are their phones ringing off the hook. All of those things were surprising. And I think I would say the third thing that surprised me was the level of hush that there still is in Germany. And, and even in other places in Europe, about talking about uh, certain Stasi officers, that they don't want to know where these officers ended up. And, you know, as an investigator, it's a very easy initial thing to take a list of all these officers, especially today, and just compare it against employment roles, you know, electronically in Germany and in Europe. And then you would quickly see out of the 70,000 people uh, you know who might be a problem. I mean, it's not necessarily a problem to have been a former Stasi officer, but if there's not transparency, it very well could be a problem. And, but there's never been an attempt to do this. And uh, I, I think that it wouldn't be possible under, under German law now. Under German law, you can't even have a copy of the Stasi list and put it on your website. You'll be fined a large fine. And uh, so you can't find the list of Stasi officers in Germany, but virtually everybody, uh, many people have private copies, but they won't talk about it and they won't publish it. And this is 35, 40 years later. That was surprising. There's been no resolution. Um, And uh, right now, there is uh, the uh, revisionist element of the Stasi organizations that continue to try to dispute the facts. Um, They send people on tour groups to pretend to be tourists at the uh, old Stasi prisons and to uh, dispute what the victims who are, the tour guides who are frequently victims, former prisoners, will say about being in a prison. So this is all happening now. And those were surprising. This isn't history per se. This This is present day.
1: I think that's a really great point um, to sort of bring the interview almost to an end um, because I think that is something that comes through really clearly is that some of these events might be historical, but they're still very much real and present um, in some ways more so than they were in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, But to some degree, while the events are obviously still ongoing and there's a lot of unresolved things, um, one thing that is somewhat resolved is the book, right? It's obviously published and it's out now. So what are you working on now that it's done, or what are you kind of doing next?
0: Well, uh, Miranda, I'm working on another project, which is quite different. It's not ready to be discussed yet, unfortunately. Uh, there are some sensitive things that could go either way. Uh, but uh, you know, I will say that it, it doesn't involve Germany, but it is, uh, it's you know, something in my kind of area of experience, let's just say that.
1: Fair enough. Well, best of luck with that new effort. Um, And in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Grey Men Pursuing the Stasi into the Present, published by One World in 2022. Ralph Hope, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Miranda.